Are you getting sick of coronavirus crisis? Are you tired of what the government is making you do? Well, I've got something to say about that once again. And we go to Book of Acts chapter 15 and discuss one of the most important disciplines the church and individual Christians can have in their lives. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, even though we sometimes don't regard it as a gift. This is your favorite night of the week. It's The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Okay, well, welcome in, everybody. Welcome in to Tuesday night in the Deep End Studio here in our North Attleboro Studios, Waters Church, and I am your host, Tim Hatch, and I'm so glad that you are here. Those of you on Facebook, like us. Those of you on YouTube, go over to youtube.com slash thedeependtv. Um, this is your final warning. Well, maybe we'll give them two more warnings. What do you think? One more, uh, uh, one yeah, more warning. Well, one more warning. We're going to start broadcasting only on youtube.com slash the deep end TV because two weeks, two more weeks, two more weeks. Yeah, because we need to drive the traffic to that channel. OK, we want you on Waters Church YouTube now to move over to the deep end YouTube, the deep end TV. So youtube.com slash the deep end TV, like and subscribe, hit the notification bell so that you're always aware of when we are online. Hello to FM 99.5. Thursday nights in Rhode Island. Hello to Spotify. Hello to WEZE in Boston. I'm uh, here to talk about the, the news of the day, which is Corona crisis. And you see that. I don't know if we can get these guys on uh, film. Can we get these guys on film? I have masked up our friends, uh, Albert Einstein and Martin Luther. Can we see that here on the screen? Yeah, oh, we can see it. Okay, good. Because they In take, true HD color. They, they, well, they take this crisis seriously, Michael. As we all should. As we all should. <laughs> And so they're here in support, and I have replaced them uh, in the front of the desk. Can we see, can we get a camera on the front of the desk where we have our new heroes, uh, Lysol and um, Sanitizer? Let me see if I can fix that. There you go, Lysol, Sanitizer. There we go. There we go. All right. There we go. There we go. Okay. We're all a little bit of last minute changing here. We're all disinfected today on the Deep End Podcast Studio. Hopefully you are too. And that brings me to our COVID-19 commentary. Let's go to the news. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. All right, so I'm going to continue to do this uh, COVID commentary until things have died down. And uh, we just got news that in Massachusetts they have extended the lockdown uh, order until May 18th. So they've added another two weeks. Ah, Lord help us. When can we go back to church? That's a good question, Michael. And uh, at some point, is it time to ask the question, is civil disobedience in order yes. for the church? Oh, sorry, well, sorry. you know, I would be tempted to say yes, but I've gone to the Bible, and oh, sometimes the Bible bugs me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like that? You know, I you wish know, the Bible would give me permission to do some things that I want to do sometimes. I'm going to have to send you this link because uh, I was I was listening to a podcast and the host was talking about somewhere in Romans when people were using that as justification for uh, you know following what the state order is mm. and and he gave a he gave a perspective on it that was like but if it's uh, if it's going against the um, the mandates of heaven you're stealing my thunder. Oh, excuse me. You're stealing my thunder, <laughs> doggone it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> How dare 
All right. That's, how, yes, how yeah, dare that I? That deserves a how dare you right there. Um, but, you know, we're going to go in that direction because I want to continue to pastor you through the crisis. Now, some, some people might say, well, why are you talking about this, Pastor? I just want to be encouraged, and I get it. I want to encourage you, but I also want to inform you. And I think that the problem with our current culture, Michael, and you can attest to this because you're a millennial, are you not? I am. And, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term, although it often is used as a derogatory I term. I wear it with pride. I just mean that you're younger than me. Yeah. You're younger than, yeah. uh, you know, in that generation that's coming up, coming of age. You know, you're in your 30s to almost 40s now, late 20s. I'm not to, even 30 yet. Come on. You're man. not even 30. So no, late 20s 29 this to year. maybe eight, late 30s. Is that, that's the millennial generation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, you're in the younger generation. You guys are all about Netflix. And chill. Roku, yeah. I didn't want to mention and chill. Here oh, sorry, you are again. Me. Last week, bodily fluids. This week, the chill part well, of Netflix. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, you are part of that group that, you know, you love the streaming, you love the entertainment. Have you got Disney Plus? No, I don't. Oh, you don't? It it comes with my Verizon account, but I haven't, uh, oh, you haven't, I haven't activated it. Oh, well. No. <laughs> well, you know, my kids are all into Disney Plus. They're into not just what the, the subscription services. You Hulu. Know, um, Hulu, Apple Plus. Yeah. Like Ricky Gervais said at the Golden Globes, if ISIS started a streaming service, some of the Hollywood stars they, they would, would call their agents. They, they would. It's just this endless stream stream of entertainment. And here's the problem that I see as a pastor in our culture is it is easier, well not, it is more common for people to just settle for being entertained than informed. Yeah. And this is the problem. Because yep. I'm all for being entertained, but if you're getting only entertained, you're not getting informed. And that's why I need to talk about these things because the church is following the trend of the culture into entertain us, entertain us. You know, prophetically, uh, Nirvana sang that very famous song, Smells Like Teenage Spirit, mm-hmm. which says, here we are now, entertain us. Yep. Very prophetic line from the poets of my generation, yeah. um, which basically is what this generation just craves and wants. Constant, constant, entertain me, entertain me, entertain Well, your entertainment options are also filled with philosophies of this age. Yeah. And Hollywood and all these, you know, writers and producers, very sly, they're very clever, they're very shrewd in how they drop the narrative into the entertainment. Oh, there's, there's for sure a very um, specific, a, a specific, worldview being injected, injected into entertainment. entertainment. Yeah. Yep. Oh, for sure. And we talked about that last week, and we talked about how there is such a, such a two-faced industry in, in, in terms of China. Well, last week tended to be a very negative uh, commentary on COVID. And so today I want to go a little bit more positive, but a little bit more pastoral. And and, and here's the thing. We've got to discuss this, this relationship of God and government. You know, what does the church do in response to government? Because it's Getting to that point, and I see a lot of Christians on Twitter, and a lot of Christians um, are talking to me, texting me, and they are getting fed up with this lockdown. Uh, and the reason why is because we've got so much of this, uh, so much evidence that is popping up. And I don't know if you knew this, but there was this uh, two doctors from California, from a California hospital. They put on YouTube a, an hour-long presentation questioning the lockdown, you, you know, orders. I, I, did Heard about, about it, this? didn't see it. You gotta, we're going to link it. Hopefully we're going to link it. I don't know if we can link that, Kelly, before the episode is over. But I want people to see it. As, it was taken down yeah. off of YouTube. Yeah. It's on my Twitter feed. You can see it there. And I actually bemoaned the fact that they, they took it down. <laughs> yeah. Well, they took it down on YouTube because it, 
it dared question the narrative of these lockdown orders. And they were basically, as doctors and scientists, based on their research, saying maybe the lockdown wasn't the right thing to do. And one of the great points that they make is that the virus can live on plastic surfaces for up to three days. So we're going to the stores and we're buying what? Bottles of water. We're buying, he says, plastic shovels. We're buying all these things on plastic and people are touching it. Touch, 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 touch. Can I have a paper bag, please? But my tomatoes are wrapped in a plastic. Exactly. Plastics everywhere. And so now we have these lockdown orders. And another point that they make is this idea of quarantining the healthy is so completely opposite of what historically societies have done in, in crises, epidemics, which no. is you quarantine the sick. Even in biblical times, you quarantine lepers. You don't quarantine healthy people and let the lepers run free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you quarantine the sick. So, you know, and I, and I see people online, they're texting me too. They're fed up with it, and I get it, and I'm fed up with it, too. I don't like being locked out. I don't like not being able to go where I want to go. I hate all of this. But I want to make some points about, it, about the, the God and government relationship because it's important for me as a pastor to keep you informed. And what, what does the Bible say about the approach that we should have toward government, and especially when, when, when it seems like government is overstepping you know, its, um, its, its boundaries in terms of what, what can they say about our lives, what can they do? Mm-hmm. So the first point that I want to make is that it's not— persecution like we, we we have a tendency to look at everything that may happen to us negatively from the state and say persecution well it's not persecution until they tell us to stop worshiping jesus or be fined for it mm-hmm. now i get it we can't gather in public but we can still worship jesus they have not shut down our streams on our church they have not shut down like youtube is shutting down dissenting narratives on the covid crisis and whether or not the lockdown is healthy or is the right decision or not but they're not shutting down the worship of jesus the free expression of christian faith so it's not persecution if it ever comes to that yeah i'm on the problems. Perse- yeah i'm yeah. on the persecution bandwagon but not yet <laughs> The second, the second uh, point that I want to make is that you have to remember, Christian, that even the Bible says government is in place by God, right? You, you know, Romans 13, you had already mentioned it mm-hmm. as you began to steal my thunder. Sorry. <laughs> Romans 13, 1, let now, every person... Show, show prep next time. Show. Yeah, show prep, right? <laughs> Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment... For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant. And that is a very important phrase right there. He is God's servant. We don't think about that, but yes, the government is God's servant. But what? For your good, and if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, I read that scripture, and I think that basically what government is in place for by God is for the protection of the innocent and the... Uh, adjudication of the guilty. Like, that's the point of government, to condemn the guilty, those who murder, rape, steal, uh, those who um, do the things that are harmful to human flourishing. Government is there bearing a sword for that purpose. And then he goes on, he says, for he is God's servant, avenger of those who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes, which we all hate, I understand, but we pay taxes for this. Theft. To- Sorry. (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them taxes, to whom taxes is owed revenue, respect, honor, so on and so forth. In the Old Testament, Daniel is a great example of the fact that he lived honorably before God, but yet he held that 
the king at the time who was in place was in place by God. And this king that he was referring to was by no means any measure of a good man. The name of the king is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a hideous, vile. You think, some of you Christians, and I get it, you think Trump is a uh, immoral, um, sex-craved, um, you know, selfish, egotistical maniac. He's got nothing on Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, nor does any president in, UN, in U.S. history have anything on Nebuchadnezzar. These, this guy was vile and wretched, and yet Daniel served him honorably uh, and prayed for him mm-hmm. and ministered to him in his court. And he is a, Daniel's a great example for Christians in our generation because we are exiles from the public sphere. In other words, we are spiritually exiled. We, we, don't, we don't feel at home here. And so we are always going to debate about, you know, who our president is and all this stuff. And I get it. Christians have different views. That's fine. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I'm just here to tell you how to respond to whoever gets elected. And that is to honor that person as the, the, the vehicle at the present time in place by God, whether or not you like him. So the past two presidents are two great examples. You either hate this one and love the previous one, or you love the previous one and you hate this one. Like yeah. They're <laughs> opposite ends yeah. of the political spectrum, right? So, so regardless of that, whether it's your good eight years or your bad eight year, four years right now, but whether it's your good four years or bad four years or last eight years where you're good or bad, it's irrelevant. You as a Christian are called to submit to government authorities as in place by God and honor them. And Daniel, and you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther, and Mordecai, these exilic Jews uh, in the Old Testament were great examples of how to respond to government that we might really not like, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians during this COVID crisis as it continues? Okay, as always, it begins with Jesus. And if we remember this, when Jesus is brought to trial, unjustly, by the way, he is brought to trial for something that he did not do, okay? And he's about to ex- be executed innocently. He is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, so you are a king. And here's Jesus's answer. It's a very, f- this, this passage has been on my mind all day today. And I just want to read it. And I want to read it intentionally because it's such a powerful passage. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. That phrase has just been in my head because, you you know, speak with me here, Michael, because Mm -hmm. I mean... What, it's hard for our present generation to grasp the Anything reality. Anything beyond right in front of yes, me. Yes, the yeah. reality that this is not our home, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, why is that? Because I grew up, you grew up Pentecostal. Yep. I grew up Pentecostal. We used to sing about going to heaven all the time. Mm-hmm. We used to sing about um, Jesus returning all the time. Those songs are over. Yeah. The yeah. new generation doesn't sing about that anymore. And I think that the church has some be, uh, blame to bear in this situation because we talk all about having a great life here mm-hmm. when our forefathers in the faith really were like, we're not from here anymore. Right. This is not our yeah. home. Je- that's what Jesus taught us, to, to live for the world to come, not the world that is here. And I thought, you know, your generation and my generation, this is a big culprit too. Because this is a little window into the gods of this world, the the age yeah. of this world. Disney Plus is right here. Yep. <laughs> Hulu is right here. 
I think anyway, right? Hulu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So they've got an app for that. They're all <laughs> on. They're all available to you at any time of the day, any hour of the day. You can. You have this window, and then you have access to any pagan, selfish, fleshly desire or lust you can imagine mm-hmm. through this little portal. And I think that this has some blame to bear in this regard as well. It might be time. And I think, you know, are you a sports fan? Uh, I mean, I, I don't like follow religiously or anything, but I'll, I'll keep up with it. Yeah. So I'm a big sports fan. And it's been hard for me to not have the NBA. I love the NBA. I talked about that last week. Right. But I love a football. I love, uh, I don't love baseball. Hockey, the NBA, and, and football. Nothing. So we don't right. have those. And then we can't go to the cinema. We can't go to the restaurants. We have yeah. nothing. That, that's more my thing is like I like going to movies, movies. or going out to, out to eat somewhere or something like that. And yet we can't do it. And yeah. God is trying to, I, th- I really believe this. That's why we're doing a wilderness series on the weekend at Water Church. But God is saying, remember that this isn't your home. And maybe those things that you are dying to go do again, maybe you were doing them too much. Maybe you were mm. so in love with them. And, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good movie. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good basketball game. But maybe our hearts were so drawn to them that the unintended consequence is we start to love this present age. And this shutdown has exposed, you know, the things that you're getting angry about that you can't have right now. Maybe that's God's way through this lockdown of exposing some inordinate desires in your life that that's need good. to be corralled. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, Peter picked up on this when he saw Jesus Christ. Because right? here's what he says in 1 Peter 2. He writes to the church in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as, and look at these words, aliens and strangers in this world. That's what Christians are in this world. Aliens and strangers. We are not of this world. And then he says, Abstain from sinful desires. They wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God. Okay, Paul says this, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. This is not my home. So, Christian, you should never really actually be very comfortable here. Mm. (laughs) And maybe we are finding out that we were too comfortable and it's time to get uncomfortable. It's time to, to embrace the, 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 the uncomfortability of this moment to remind ourselves spiritually that we aren't at home yet. And hopefully the, the fruit of all of this is it, it puts our eyes on heaven again. It, it puts our eyes on the kingdom of God and not politics and not entertainment and not all the stuff that we just get so saturated into. That's my thought. So what do we do? We, we also pray. As 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then I urge prayer, supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he says, For kings and all who are in high positions. And the prayer for that reason is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Christians aren't protesters where it's not absolutely necessary. Okay? Christians aren't people who picket. Christians Hmm. are called to peaceful and quiet living. Godly and dignified living. Man, I want to go protest right now. Same. <laughs> I want to go to the state house. Somebody yeah. get me a sign. And, and, a and they were going to go down there on the first, too. Right, right. Yeah, I know. And, and so, you know, my flesh is saying that. And I'm like, maybe God is exposing, Tim, you are too attached to your political point of view. And you need to remember that you don't belong here. And so, you know, maybe I'm pe- talking to you or I'm just talking to me, but this is what the Lord is just kind of showing me through the scripture. And, and then look at how he finishes this passage. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
Why? Because he desires all people to be saved. And so the point of our quiet living, the point of our not being a disruption to governmental authority is so that people look to what we have to say and they hear about Jesus. And if our political alignment gets in the way of telling people about Jesus, then we're doing political alignment wrong. Now, the third point that I want to make, I don't even know if I mentioned the second point, but here's the third point. (laughs) Sometimes, yes, it is necessary for the church to and actually, the church is obligated to do this, to criticize governmental policies when they are harmful mm-hmm. to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes to civilly disobey. Yeah. Right? We have, we have mandates in the Scripture. We have examples in the Scripture. Uh, I think about Exodus chapter 1 when it says the king of Egypt, this was the order the king of Egypt gave to kill all the newborn baby boys of, of, of the Hebrews. And he said, he said to the Hebrew midwives, uh, one of them named Sifra and the other named Pua. <laughs> Great Bible names. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him, but if it's a daughter, he shall live. Now, that was the law. That was a law that the king of Egypt passed. And what do they do? They, look at that, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. So mm-hmm. when government asks the church to do things that are harmful to humanity, we have a God-ordained right and obligation to resist yeah. and to disobey civilly. Yeah. I mean, we could go over countless cases of where this happens. And, and that's because the, the rights cited in the Constitution for our country were God-given rights, the rights to peacefully assemble, to choose your leaders, oh, yeah. et cetera. That's a biblical, you know, that's 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 what the church or that's what the government can't take away yes. <laughs> because it came from God in the first place. I mean the, the the whole idea of a democracy, the birth of democracy, you don't I don't think you have democracy without this guy right here. Right. Uh, Martin Luther, who questions this you know, the authority of the church and state. Yeah. Who says, no, wait, we're not going to align church and state. Well, the, the, the product of the Reformation is we're not going to align church and state as one unit anymore. And you have America because of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther also was, at the end of his life, a very famous anti-Semite, mm-hmm. which, you know, but he was also losing his mind a little bit. So let's give him some grace there. Uh, but the point of the matter is there are times when it is necessary. And he is a great example of this, in, even in his own life, where he dis obeyed. He civilly rejected the standards and the laws of the day to fight for human flourishing. Yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is Daniel chapter 3. He said, we don't, we don't want to defend ourselves in this matter, they say. If it's, if it's so, God is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, but we want you to know, verse 18, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There was, an, there was, there was a demand of government to worship the governmental image, and they said, we refuse. So where our worship is challenged, where humans are hurt, and this is why I am absolutely, oh, back to human flourishing, this is why Christians should be pro-life and should fight the pro-life cause, Yes, regardless of who's pro-life in politics. We absolutely have a mandate from heaven to fight for the salvation of the human life in the womb, regardless of the other person's belief. These people who say, well, I'm... I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to tell anybody else what to do. I liken that to Christians in Nazi Germany who said, well, I don't think you should kill the Jews, but I'm not going to tell Hitler what to yeah. do. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? And if we if we refuse to, to speak up in our generation about what we know is wrong, future generations are going to judge the church the way we judge the, the, the pro-slave trade preachers of the South in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. We look back on those guys and we say they were, in, they were immoral. 
And someday they're going to look back on the churches today, and there are plenty of churches on the other side of the, of the abortion movement who fight for the right of abortion, and they're going to go down in human history, uh, on the ash heap of human history, the same way that the pro-slavery preachers of the, uh, of, of, the, of the South did in this country in the 1700s and 1800s. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we have to question government. And I just want to say something to, to those of you who question why I talk about this. Because we can do both. We can do both. I can encourage you in the word, and then I can tell you what's happening in the world so that you are aware of it, and you are informed about it, and you know that you have an obligation to respond to it. Christianity is not just going with the flow. Christianity is not just about you being encouraged. That's not Christianity. Christianity is active in the mud and in the muck and in the garbage of the human condition and working, oftentimes being hated as we do it, to bring about change for the flourishing of the human condition. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my COVID commentary. <laughs> okay, one well more said. One more, one more thing and I'm done. I'm reading this book by, by Eric Metaxas called Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned it several weeks in a row. you got to read this book because Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I am just amazed. I, I had heard of his story, but I'm learning so much about his story this guy who stood against Nazi Germany, who stood against Hitler and ended up dying um, a month before the war ended. He, the, what, what, what appalls me about the story is the number of Christians and friends that he had who did not last in standing against Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And I see that happening in America right now. I see that happening in our country. These Christians who want to just, well, peace. Let's just, let's just work for peace. Let's not disturb the peace. Let's not. What? If Dietrich Bonhoeffer had done that, do you realize how, how terribly different the world would be if he had not stood against the cultural tide and been unpopular in his generation because he saw the writing on the wall about what Nazi Germany stood for and did something about it? Um, he had a friend. His name was Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller was a pastor in Berlin. And this is an interesting story. When Hitler started to rise to power, Martin Niemöller actually loved Hitler. This is a Christian pastor. Mm. He actually wrote him a, congratu- a congratu- congratulations. Congratulatory. Congratulatory. There you go. Thank you. That's why you're talking. You're welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> a congratulatory telegram to Hitler when he got elected. Can you believe that a pass? Could you imagine that? Yeah. And 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 Bonhoeffer was shocked. He said, "I can't believe that you're supporting this guy. Can't you see?" And he said, "No, this is good for Germany." And the problem with Niemöller was he was more German than he was Christian. And there are a lot of there are a lot of American Christians. They are more American than they are Christian. Mm-hmm. Watch out for that. You are not of this world. And anyway, eventually he his eyes were opened to who Hitler was. And then for a couple of years, he he vocally and vehemently preached against the Nazi regime right in the middle of Berlin, right in Berlin. But he was arrested, and he was a uh, personal prisoner of um, Adolf Hitler for eight years in a concentration camp. He did survive, but he wrote a very famous poem. That's his, That's a picture of him, by the way. He wrote a very famous poem, and the poem goes like this. First they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah. We, we, we have an obligation to be informed. And Christians, so many of you are just settling for being entertained or encouraged. 
And I refuse as a pastor to just, edu- to just encourage you. I need to inform you. We need to know what's going on. And you say, well, what can I do, pastor? What can I do? You can call your representatives. You can call your senators. You can call your legislature. You, can, you should be on, on Facebook talking about these things respectfully, respectfully. But please don't feel f- afraid to put your view out there. Say it respectfully, right? Don't mm-hmm. call names. Don't be a jerk. Don't be mean-spirited. But say it respectfully. I responded to my governor on Twitter when the, when the closing of the schools happened. I said, I disagree with this. We've got to start looking at herd immunity. This is ridiculous. We're mm-hmm. overreacting. All the, all the reports are we are overreacting about this. Say it. And don't get mean about it. And let your voice be heard because they will listen. I do believe they will listen. And we, you know, Edmund Burke, the very famous uh, uh, historian, um, very simply said, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail was for good men to do nothing. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of good people out there listening, watching right now. You got to say something. You got to speak up. And don't be closeted as a Christian just because the culture is anti Christian right now. Who cares? We do have a responsibility to say what is right. Anyway, pray for your leaders, obey where you can obey. At some point, I, and I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that we are at that point where we are experiencing governmental abuse at all. But here's what I do think the COVID crisis has opened my eyes that. It's not too far away in this country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where, where Christians are really going to be challenged about God or the government, Caesar or God. And not now, but it's not far away. We've got to get rooted and grounded in Christ. And that brings us to, finally, mm-hmm. <laughs> the book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, thedeependtv. Okay, Acts chapter 15, I call this, ty- uh, this talk the discipline of self-correction. One of the great benefits of the Holy Spirit is the discipline of self-correction. He provides you and the church the discipline of saying, this thing about me might need to change, and uh, it might be something that you never thought about needing to change. And so this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts chapter 15. I love this particular chapter in the book of Acts. It might be my favorite chapter, and I'm going to show you why in just a moment. As we go through it, you're going to love it too, I think. So uh, the, the subtitle first says, The Importance of Challenging Our Churchy Assumptions. The Importance of Challenging Our Churchy Assumptions. Okay. Paul and Barnabas have been bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Uh, it's been about 10 years since the resurrection, and you have to remember that the, the entire Christian movement up to this moment has been Jewish except for a few uh, uh, people, which is the Samaritans, which are half-Jews, in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family. But outside of them, the Christian movement has been 100% Jewish. And what happens is Paul and Barnabas go on these missionary journeys. The first one starts in Acts chapter 13. They're sent out. They go to Cyrene, Cyprus, and then they go to Cyrene. They go to all these uh, cities. And they start with the synagogues, but the synagogues end up rejecting them. And then the Gentiles start coming to faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas are thrilled about this. But what happens, it it produces this underlying current of tension in the church. And the tension is this. What do we do with non-Jewish believers? What do we do with people who get saved and they aren't first Jewish? 
And this is the question that the church is going to answer in Acts chapter 15 through a church council. And they're going to actually correct themselves. And you have to understand something about the church. At every age in the church, there are underlying assumptions that need to be challenged. At every age of the church, there are underlying assumptions that need to be challenged. And the assumption in Acts chapter 15 is Gentiles must become Jews in order to become Christians. And that assumption is going to die by the end of Acts chapter 15. And it's a great moment in Christian history, particularly for men. (laughs) I think I have to explain why, but we might go there. But it begs this question. It's a very important question. What assumptions is the church, is the contemporary church making that need to be challenged in our age? What assumptions are we making right now that, w- that need to be challenged in our age? Okay, the assumption in Acts chapter 15, you got to be Jewish to become Christian. Well, what are our assumptions today? Can I do a little bit of review? Historically bad assumptions made by the church of Jesus Christ. Historically bad assumptions made by the church. About 60 years ago, the assumption was this. Blacks and whites could not or should not worship together. That was an assumption made by the church, particularly, of course, in the South, where segregation and Jim Crow laws were in effect. About 90 years ago, the assumption was this. Science has disproved all miracles, and therefore we must assume the miracles of the Bible were fables. And so a whole side of Christianity decided to eliminate the miraculous from the scriptural record and only assume the moral teachings of Jesus. That was an assumption. It needed to be challenged. It was challenged. It's still being challenged today in some circles. About 200 years ago, the assumption was that the Holy Spirit no longer worked supernaturally through the church. The gifts of the Spirit died in the days of the apostles. This was started by a guy named Benjamin Warfield. I talked about this a few episodes ago in the podcast on the book of Acts. That was an assumption that the church made. It had to be challenged. It is being challenged even still to this day. Thank God the Holy Spirit still works in power, in miracles, in the gift of tongues, prophecy words of wisdom, words of knowledge, all the gifts that God gave the church through the Holy Spirit still alive. And then let's go back a little further to my friend Martin Luther's days. About 500 years ago, the assumption was that purchasing indulgences from the church helped your your dead loved ones get out of purgatory faster. So the church had a lot of money to make here. And by the way, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is built on the sale of indulgences. Because there's assumptions that have been in the church's history that have had to be challenged throughout the church's life, 2,000 years going. We have been doing this for 2,000 years. And I want to ask an important question again. What assumptions is the church making? Or are the church making? It's hard to say whether that should be is or are. What assumptions is or are the church, the contemporary church making that need to be challenged in our generation? And I thought about our COVID crisis. And if you're listening to this past COVID, just remember I recorded this in the midst of the COVID crisis. Okay, so we're in lockdown. And I thought about, here are some assumptions that COVID crisis is actually helping us to challenge, okay? And I, they're good ones. They're helpful ones. Here's number one. The church is a one-day-a-week event. That's an assumption a lot of Christians make. Oh, we go to church on Sunday. And the COVID crisis has actually forced that out of our, out of our regular schedule. So now we have to be the church 
Not just on Sunday, but seven days a week. We have to help each other. We have to call each other. We have to check on each other. We have to be intentional to serve one another in creative ways. This has actually been a wonderful challenge to our assumption. The crisis actually, actually helped us challenge that assumption. Here's another assumption that the COVID crisis is helping us challenge. The church is a building you go to. That's an assumption we need a challenge for because the church is not a building. The church is people. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. Another one. The church is all about the pastor and the style of worship. This is a great assumption that we need to challenge today. So much of church in, in, in America is about who the pastor is. How cool is he? Does he wear jeans on the stage? Does he wear ripped jeans on the stage? Does, does he wear supreme sweatshirts and hoodies and, and cool sneakers? Like, really? That's what we're asking? That's what we're into? That's what we're following? Are we not, are we not following a poor Jewish carpenter from Nazareth? Okay. Or the style of worship. Like this COVID crisis has eliminated all that stuff. It's wonderful that it has eliminated this idea that we go to a building to be the church. We don't have a building to go to anymore. It's wonderful that we've eliminated, that we've challenged the assumption that it's one day a week. No, we've got to do it all week. We've got to be the church all week. And then another assumption. The church, should invo- the church should avoid embracing emerging technology. Now, this one is not a challenge for our church, at least, I don't think. We're pretty good on this. We're coming to you through the magic of technology. A lot of our church has moved into the, t- into the online ministry already, but i got a lot of friends in ministry who are, who are rushing to try to catch up to what we do right now, which is put our, everything that we do online. And so maybe for some Christians listening to me, and you don't go to a church that does online ministry, or you didn't, now your church is being forced to get online and Maybe this is a great assumption that needed to be challenged in the church because I know a lot of Christian pastors who think it is actually morally good to reject technology. Well, that's just ridiculous because you know what was technologically advanced in Paul's day? Roads and writing. And he used both to travel from city to city, and then he used the pen to write letters that we have in the New Testament. That was the emerging technology in the first century. Well, the emerging technology in our century is this, is video, is online streaming, is what we're doing right now. The church needs to embrace this for the sake of the gospel. And so my other question is, what else is out there? What else? Maybe you could put them in the comments. Some assumptions we need to challenge and the COVID crisis has actually helped us challenge these assumptions. And now we are learning that, oh, wait a second, the church doesn't actually just do that. The church is this. And this is a good thing, not just for your church experience, but for your own personal Christian experience. <clears throat> there are two passages in Ephesians that talk about the fact that Jesus is working on his church. Ephesians chapter 4, 11. It says that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up. And that term building up is, it implies that there's change, the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, maturity, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That there is a process of development. There's a process of upward mobility in the spiritual realm that is still in action through the Holy Spirit at the uh, at the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is working on us, short, short, short form. He is working on us. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify. So he died for you in order that he might sanctify, purify you. This is an ongoing process. Cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Look at this last line. Without spot or wrinkle. I got a question for you. Does the church have wrinkles? Yes. Does the church have spots? Yes. But guess what? I believe that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is eliminating the spots and the wrinkles. He's doing it slowly. He's doing it generationally in some cases. Sometimes a whole generation needs to die so that the church can embrace something that the the Lord wants them to embrace because that former generation just refused to believe, like the generation that was in the wilderness. They refused to believe the Canaanites' uh, land. So so God let them die off, and, and with the younger generation, went in and took the land. I mean, that's how it is. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is is a work in the church through the Holy Spirit where it challenges the assumptions of what has been and becomes, I believe, a more beautiful representation of what God wants the church to be in the world today. Which brings me to this truth. The church, led by the Holy Spirit in every age, has the capacity and the obligation to self-correct, to check itself. And this applies to you personally, Christian. Your Christian walk is about you getting challenged in what you're doing, what you believe. So many times Christians are so adept at looking at other Christians and saying, you need to change. And that's not what Christ calls us to. He wants to do a work in you. Do we hold our brothers and sisters accountable? Yes, but you are not the Holy Spirit, right? You are, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and your own personal transformation is your priority. And so you've got to look at this chapter in Acts. I know we're going to look at the church in terms of its um, communal uh, mandates, but it's also a personal application for yourself. What assumptions about your Christian walk that you are living with right now need to be challenged so that God can start to open your eyes to truth that will transform you into a more perfect reflection of Jesus Christ to your family, workplace, world. Got it? That's why Acts chapter 15 is a chapter we want to pay close attention to because the church has this assumption. Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be Christians, and that assumption is going to die through the Holy Spirit, through the church, through the leaders of the church, Hashing it out, working it out, and making a correction. Let's get into the text. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had, look at that, no small discussion or dissension and debate with them. No small. Love how Paul write, uh, Luke writes things. Uh, it was a big dissension. It was a big debate. And Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. Okay, the word but is tying us to what has happened previously in Acts chapter 14. And that is, if you remember, that the Gentiles are coming in mass to Christ. And so these guys from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is from, which is where the whole movement starts, They go to these new Gentile converts and they say, wait a second, wait a second, you can't do this. Here's what their assumption was, okay? Pre-Acts 15 assumption is this. In order to be saved, Gentiles must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses plus believe in Jesus. That was the assumption. Now, anything plus Jesus is heresy. 
in terms of Christian Christian salvation. Anything plus Jesus is heresy. So believe in Jesus and go to church. Heresy. To be saved. In other words, to be saved. To 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 be counted amongst the redeemed, right? Okay? Salvation is the work of God by grace through faith, not of works, not of anything that you do, okay? As important and as vital and as necessary as it is to obey Christ in going through the waters of baptism after belief, the waters of baptism do not, do not become a work wherein you save or complete the work of salvation in your life, Okay? Please don't take that to mean you don't have to be baptized. You should be baptized. Jesus commands it. It's all throughout the New Testament. Absolutely. But it is not a work that brings salvation to your soul. That is a work of God, complete and final in Jesus. But here in Acts chapter 15, <laughs> there were some Christians, and they were Jewish Christians, of course, and they came from Judea, the center, the, the Jerusalem, they came from Jerusalem, the hub of Judaism. And they said, look, in order for these people, these outsiders, to come inside, they gotta first become like us. They gotta get circumcised, which I which is why I said this would be a problem for men today if this was still in a place. <laughs> like, could you imagine this in, in 21st century America? Oh, uh, yeah. Welcome to our church. Uh, we've got a class for you and a small little medical procedure, and then you're in, right? Like <laughs> that would be pretty nasty. But anyway, I digress. Verse four. When they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And this is Paul and Barnabas. And they declared all that God had done with them. They told about the Gentiles becoming Christian. These people who were so far from God, now they're becoming Christian. We talk about Jesus and they get saved. But verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. By the way, I love this because, look, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. There were Pharisees who became Christians. Pharisees get a bad name in the New Testament. A lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, and myself included, we talk about, don't be a Pharisee. You don't want to be a Pharisee. But a lot of Pharisees got the message. Jesus was hard on the Pharisees. They were, he was hard on the Pharisees because their religious ritual trumped their love for their neighbor. And I'm glad to see here that a lot of the Pharisees actually said, you know what, we're wrong. We need Christ and we believe. But they brought into their new life in Christ some of their old nature. Because look what it says. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them uh, and to order them and, <laughs> not just circumcise, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses was 613 ordinances in Leviticus, Exodus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy that no one other than Jesus Christ was able to perform. No one. And I want to just bring us to an assumption. And it's a, well, before we get into the assumption, it's, it's, an, it's a temptation. And it's a temptation for every church and every Christian. And the temptation is this. To let our version of Christian ritual become the mandate for everybody else. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is how churches get totally insider-focused. In other words, everything about that church serves the needs of those already saved. And I get it. We should serve one another in love. Absolutely. But when we only focus on people already in, we make strangers and we ostracize those who could come in. And this is the failing of many churches, many Christians. I still have to challenge myself in this. Am I just comfortable with church for me? doing church the way I want to do church because I like it? Or am I challenging myself to, to get uncomfortable with a version or a form of church for the sake of non-churched people? Because if we don't make it easy for them to come, they may never come. You see what I'm saying? 
So, so here's the assumption that I want to present to you. Bad assumption number one from this text. How we do church is how it should be done for all time. <laughs> like, so, you know, just think about it. Like, music is a big deal. The, there was the battle over hymns and contemporary music. There was the battle over drums and guitars and then lights and then smoke and then video screens and, and now video preaching and, and, and now maybe even online services and online giving and all these things that we should actually probably adapt and trans, you know, and, and conform things to because it's easier for people to connect with Christ. And yet there's always that little slight pushback to say, well, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, I'm not comfortable with that. But if it's not, if it's not undermining the message of Jesus, then I say all bets are off. If it doesn't hinder the message, if it doesn't alter the message, we should try it for the sake of making the gospel heard to as many people as possible. This is the challenge of Acts chapter 15. So verse 6 says this, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, so they really thought about this, they really challenged themselves about this. It says this, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and between them, having cleansed their hearts. Oh, that's such a good word right there. Cleanse their hearts by faith. What is he talking about? He's talking about Acts chapter 10. Remember that? Acts chapter 10, Peter's hungry, it's 12 noon. There's a vision of a sheet coming down with all kinds of unclean animals on the sheet, on the sheet, and God says, get up and eat. And, Jesus, and Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten unclean things. He says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And it was an illustration. And at that very moment, he's seeing that vision. There's men from Cornelius' house, the, 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 the Roman centurion's house, coming to get him, to bring him to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to him. He goes, he preaches the gospel, he just starts talking about Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls on them, they start speaking in tongues, and they're saved. Like, there's no doubt that God has accepted Cornelius, even though Cornelius is probably not circumcised, has not obeyed the Jewish laws, does not really know the Torah that well, and is not a Jew. And he's saved. And Peter's saying, guys, remember this happened already. Remember that God saved them without them doing anything to gain God's approval to be saved. Okay? And so here's the key moment in Peter's speech, verse 10. Now, therefore... Why are you, look at this phrase, this is so fantastic. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That, that, that passage right there, that verse, before we get to 11, is so jam-packed. First off, he says, why are you putting God to the test? And Peter knows, he's, he's very shrewd in this moment because he knows if you want to get a Jew's attention, accuse them of putting God to the test. <laughs> here's why because that phrase comes from a very dark moment in Jewish history Israel's history it's from Numbers chapter 14 remember we already talked about it when they were about to go to the promised land and they send 12 uh, spies in and, and they come back and they say wow it's amazing it's great but 10 of the spies say we can't do it and 2 spies say we can't and in that moment the response that God says very potent phrase he says, you have seen what I have done in the wilderness. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and yet you have put me to the test. You have refused to believe me in spite of what you've seen. And that is the phrase, that is the phrase that Peter uses to challenge these guys who don't want to receive Gentiles into the church because they haven't been circumcised yet. 
Peter is very shrewd. He's saying, look, we saw God save them. They spoke in tongues. They received the Holy Spirit just like us. And we're going to sit there and look at what God has done, and then we're going to tell God what to do. We're going to tell God what they need to do. It doesn't work like that. That's putting God to the test. Then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Back up again to verse uh, 10 before we get there. It says, why are we going to put a yoke on their neck that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, Peter's being very upfront here. I love it. I love Peter's honesty. He's like, hey, you know those 613 laws that Moses gave us? We stink at them. We can't do them. You know it. I know it. Our dads knew it. Their dads knew it. It's impossible. And now you want to take those 613 laws that we can't even obey, and then you want to put them on them. It's like, that's that's uh, disingenuous, right? That's basically what he's saying. And then he says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. That's what happens. That's how we get saved, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not through our church and our churchianity, not through our church rituals. That's why the church must always adapt its methods to proclaim its message. Never adapt the message. Always adapt the methods so that the message can be heard. Going on, verse 12, it says this, and all the assembly fell silent. You know why they fell silent? Because if you want to get a Jew's attention, tell them they're putting God to the test. <laughs> Just bring them back to Numbers 14, okay? He said, and they all fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. So Bar- Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to start talking, but look at what happens next. James starts talking. So you got Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, and James. And by the way, that's important because uh, Jesus taught by the mouth of two or three witnesses, shall all things be established. That comes from Deuteronomy as well. So you've got multiple important voices speaking to the same thing. Verse 13, James' speech. After these things, after finishing, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related to us how God first visited the Gentiles. And he's referring to Peter as Simeon here. I don't know why, but he does. Anyway, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild his ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay, so James is doing what good Christians should do. He's referring to the Old Testament to to enact the standards of the New Testament. The Old Testament were holy writings given to God, and so he quotes from given from God to the Jews for the sake of the nations, right? So he's quoting from Zechariah. He's quoting from Amos. He's quoting from Jeremiah. He's putting a whole bunch of verses together that talk about the fact that God always wanted to use the Jews to reach the Gentiles. He always wanted the Jewish people to be his witnesses, his priestly family to the nations. That's even in Exodus chapter 19 where we were this past Sunday. A treasured possession, a priesthood nation, a nation of priests for the other nations. And so he quotes scripture to prove the argument. And then this next line is my favorite line in the entire chapter. It is such a powerful line. Verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And I have it in the NIV up in the screen because I love the NIV translation even better. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we should make it easy for people who are far from God to connect with God. 
Do you see why Acts chapter 15 is so great, why I love it? Because this is what the church should be doing. This, the church should be self-correcting to make it easier for people who are not like us to connect with the Jesus who saved us. This is why we ask you to serve at our church, by the way. This is not so that you can earn brownie points to get into heaven. <laughs> we ask you to serve so that you can help other people get to heaven. Right? That's why we ask you to serve. This is why we're always challenging what we do. We're always trying to change and, and manipulate it and transform it and adjust it and, 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 and do whatever necessary to, to reach people and make it easy for them to come to Christ. We don't want to get in the way. And sometimes if we're honest, our, our, our version of Christianity can get in the way of bringing people to Christ. Which brings me to bad assumption number two. This assumption that we make, we need, to, we, we need to be careful of it. But here's the assumption. Of course our church is welcoming to those who are far from God. Are you sure? Are you sure? I was raised Pentecostal. I was raised in a church that had several different hurdles that people had to jump over in order to be one of us. Several. You had to first come, and you had to put up with the fact that people were a little bit crazy during worship. <laughs> and then they would speak in weird languages that, didn't, that you didn't know, and then they would interpret those languages, and then, and then they would have like, you know, they would um, have these altar calls, and if you didn't come forward, you felt like a worse sinner than the people who did go forward. Uh, and then, you know, you had to go through all of these hoops to become one of us. And I don't see that in the life of Christ, and I definitely don't see it here in the, in the book of Acts. I see in the book of Acts and in the heart of Jesus a do-whatever-it-takes to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring love to the loveless, to bring grace to the sinners. Jesus said, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. The church must do so as well. The church has a mandate to change and challenge itself so that non-believers feel welcomed in. Yes, never change the message. Always change the methods. So the truth is this. The truth is, it is the responsibility of those inside the church to make it easy for those outside the church to explore and become part of the church. If you are a Christian, you should want non-Christians to come to your church. You should want non-Christians to feel engaged in the community even before they believe in Jesus. This is what Acts chapter 15 is all about. The Gentiles are coming. Should they get circumcised? No. We don't want to make it hard for them. And you don't get saved by what you do. So, so let's not make that an issue. Let's not make that a requirement. So this is infinitely important. It's really a, a passion of mine uh, to, as a pastor to make the church um, outsiders-focused and not insiders-focused. So Acts chapter 15, verse 20. So then you should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Uh, for from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, James is giving us, or the church, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15, four qualifiers for what the Gentile believers need to do in order to be accepted um, in fellowship with the Jewish Christians. Now, this passage could get misinterpreted if you're not careful. Because now you could look at this and say, oh, okay, so there's basically four rules for Gentile believers. So 613, let's just toss those in the dumpster, and let's just give the Christians who are Gentiles four rules, and those four rules would be abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, 
and abstain from what has been strangled, meat that has been strangled, and from blood. Don't eat things with blood in it. Okay. Those are not the new rules for Gentile Christians. Um, he's talk, he's uh, preparing to connect Gentile believers to Jewish believers, and that will never happen if the Gentile believers do not stop participating in pagan worship practices. That's what he's talking about here. Because in the ancient world, there were ancient religions, the pagan religions. Okay, there was Jew- Judaism, the, or the, the Abrahamic covenant faith with Yahweh, and then there was pagan revelry, pagan worship festivals, and all the pagan festivals. We have, we have documented research on this throughout the world. Um, all pagan worship festivals included one of those things, or sometimes all four of those things, which is food that had been uh, killed to, to uh, offer to an idol, um, sexual morality, so a lot of times pagan revelry, pagan feasts would include sexual promiscuity, orgies, the whole thing, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism, the whole thing. That's what pagan revelry indulged in, okay? And um, meat that had been strangled and blood, so really awful, uh, immoral pagan feasts. That's what they would celebrate. And so what James is saying, he's saying, I want you guys to tell the Gentile Christians that they have to stop being pagans, as Christians. That's what this phrase is about. So this is not four rules for Gentile Christians for all time. This is a clear delineation. If you're going to be a Christian, if you are saved, okay, then you are done with pagan feasts. You are done with pagan practices. You are done with idolatry, and you are now worshiping the one true and living God. And if you want to hang with Jewish Christians, you got to stay away from the things that they stay away from, which is blood and meat sacrificed to idols. That's the point. And the point is, let's make it easy for them to come, but when you come, make sure that you understand that those who have certain uh, you know, problems with certain uh, practices that you come from, make sure you're not bringing those into the church because that's, that's paganism. You see what's happening in, here in, in Acts chapter 15? It's actually a beautiful picture of the church coming together through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into unity and table fellowship. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the leaders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent uh, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, uh, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Uh, And then I just want to notice this word seemed good. Can you just look at that in verse 22? Then it seemed good. (laughs) And by the way, they will use that word seemed good in verse 24, here in 22, then in verse 24, 25, and 28. And I just thought about this. This is a great point. This is a, this is a cool point. They have this great big church council. People are testifying. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to get Gentiles into the church. Here's what we're going to say that they should do. Here's We're not going to require a circumcision. And, and, and this feels right. And the best that they could come up with, the best that they could offer is this. It seems good. It seems good. <laughs> To me, that's like we're 80% sure that this is what the Lord wants us to do, which is just kind of funny to me as a Christian leader because it leads me to bad assumption number three, and that is this. Christian leaders must always know for sure the Lord's will in a matter. Or or maybe you as a personal Christian must always know for sure the Lord's will in a matter. You know, sometimes you just don't know 100%. You're just not at 100%. Sometimes the best you can come up with in making decisions for your life is it seems good. (laughs) 
it's not always it's not always black and white. That's why I say, yeah, challenge the government, but you know, maybe not. You know, right? Like that's it's, it's what seems good, and I think that the Holy Spirit, where it's not clearly written in Scripture, and you, it feels good, it seems good. Yes, you can trust the Holy Spirit to make some decisions that are not clearly delineated in Scripture. And I love this because the pressure is off. We don't always know. Hey, pastors and leaders, we don't always know, right? Those of you who are under pastors and leaders, your pastors and leaders, they don't always know 100% for sure what they should do. A lot of times we're just doing what seems good. Anyway, verse 24. Since we have heard that some, of persons have got, some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has, again, seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Verse 28, for it seemed good. Again, you notice how many times they say, we're pretty sure this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burdens than these. And he, and he lists those. Uh, and he says, if you keep these, uh, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. In other words, the Gentile Christians were like, oh, good. Thank God. We don't have to get circumcised, especially the men, right? And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Notice the heart of Paul. He wants to go back. He wants to go back and visit those places where he was almost killed for the gospel. I love this from Paul. Like, let's go back and check on those brothers. And this is a pastoral heart here. I don't want to just get you saved. I want to make sure that you're still walking in the faith. I want to make sure that you're still tr trusting in Christ. And a pastor has that kind of a heart for people. In verse 37, there's a little bit of a dispute. Now watch this. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him, uh, with them, John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take, uh, take with uh, them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. So remember, John Mark leaves; he ditches Paul and Barnabas after Cyprus because he, I think, is because he's uh, Barnabas's cousin, and he was upset that Paul had kind of taken the lead. I, that's my assumption. Again, that might be a bad assumption, but that's what I'm thinking. Anyway, he left. Paul saw him leave; didn't like it. And, Paul, and Barnabas is like, no, let's, let's, let's bring him back in. Let's, let's give him another chance. And verse 39 says, and there arose, look at the words, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Yes, the early church had some disagreements. It wasn't all uh, a bed of roses. You know, it wasn't all peace between the, the, the important leaders of the Christian church in the, in the first century. Barnabas took with him Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And I just want to stop with this, because this is the end of the chapter anyway. But, but here's the thing. You, you, got, you got John Mark, who left Paul and Barnabas earlier. They meet up with him again back in Jerusalem. And then you got Barnabas, his cousin, who's like, let's give him another chance. And you got Paul saying, nope, I can't trust him again. He ditched us once. He'll ditch us again. And so I see two guys here, Barnabas, Paul. And they're different kinds of guys. And they're both Christian leaders, and they both have a heart for the gospel. Barnabas is that caring pastor. He wants to reach out. He's relational. He likes to give people more and more chances. He likes to work with people who may have 
you know, left him in the past. And then you got Paul, and he's just that type A guy. He's like, nope, that's it. It's about the mission. The mission is serious. We got to be all on about this. We got to be, you know, guns blazing. And if you if you if you don't follow through, I'm, it's going to be over for you. And and I just want you to see something here. It's very important. Two different Christian leaders, and they're both saved, and they're both mission oriented, and they're both okay. Which brings me to one last assumption. I, it might be a side note, but I like this assumption. There's really only one kind of Christian minister. Some of you were raised with a Barnabas kind of pastor, and so you could never possibly be out of it, uh, under any other kind of pastor. And I say, well, why? Maybe, maybe you need a Paul. Maybe you need a Paul who would challenge you. Maybe you need a Paul who will fire you up for, for gospel ministry. And then some of you were raised by a pastor who was more like Paul, a type A, a business guy, a driven guy, and you could never relate to a Barnabas. And I say, why? Maybe you need a Barnabas to give you some, some spiritual care, some, some, some emotional care. Maybe you need both, both and. Both and are good. But my point is that there's not only one kind of Christian minister, one kind of pastor, and there's not even one kind of Christian. We are all different. And the differences actually make us better for it. And the church needs both kinds of ministers. And so I wrap up this entire talk to say this. Look, we've got to challenge ourselves and our own assumptions about what the church is so that we can be the church that the world needs us to be in order that they might hear about Jesus. That's what this talk was about. That's what this chapter is about. That's what Acts is showing us. The discipline of self-correction. Why? For the sake of mission, so that others may hear that Jesus is the way. I hope that you will join me in this process. It's not easy. It's not easy to change. It's not easy to adapt to new ways of doing things, but it's necessary. The world needs Jesus. He's coming soon. Let's make him known as fast as possible in Jesus' name. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Here's your... Second to last warning, third to last warning, okay? YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. From now on, YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. So if you're on the Waters Church YouTube, get over there and like and subscribe and click the notification bell and become one of our subscribers over at YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. I am Tim Hatch. I am the host of the Deep End Podcast, and I'm so glad that you were here. I will see you next Tuesday night on the deep end. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.